0: Welcome to the workshop, Agnostics and Atheists On Board. My name is Diane, I am a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Hi everyone. Before we begin, please turn off your cell phones and pagers. This workshop is being taped. All opinions expressed by those who share their own are not necessarily those of OA as a whole. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, ask it basket questions and sharing on the topic a basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers please specify whom your question is for the reading is from as Bill sees it page 208 reason take this off so I can Reason, a bridge to faith. We were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us have already walked along the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith, where a friendly hands stretched out in welcome. We were grateful that reason had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we had been relying too heavily on reason that last mile, and we did not like to lose our support. Yet, without knowing it, had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? For did we not believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have the confidence in our ability to think? What was that but sort of a faith? We have been faithfully, faithful, objectively faithful to the God of reason. So in one way or another, we discover that faith has been involved all the time. Our first speaker is Merle from West Hollywood, who will speak for about 25 minutes. Do we have a timer here? You do. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you, Merle.
1: My name is Merle. I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, Merle. I want to welcome you here this early morning. The issue of God was one that was very disturbing for me when I first came into the fellowship. Uh, let me get the statistics out of the way. I'll, uh, I'll pass my picture around. Uh, I first came into OA in 1977. Uh, it was my second 12-step program. I... Uh, I was sent by a judge to get sober in AA a year before that. I'd, I was in and out of away for a number of years because no matter how well I was doing in another 12-step program, I wasn't able to control my eating. Food was my drug of choice from the time that I can remember. I finally got abstinent. This last time in February of 1993, so I've got a little over 12 years to save you the math. And I'm maintaining a weight loss right now of about 55 pounds. It's, it's, it's gone up and down some, but uh, that's about where it is today. And over the last year, I have very slowly maintained and actually lost about 20 pounds through the last year. I just plain never believed in God. I don't have an argument with anyone who does. The issue for me has nothing to do with theological debate. When I first came into the program, I was sure that, that my disbelief was going to be an impediment to my being able to be a wholehearted, fully accepted member of the fellowship. That turned out not to be true. But that's what I thought when I was new. There were people who told me that if I didn't believe in God, I wasn't going to be able to stay abstinent. Uh, I now understand that they were not speaking for OA. They were speaking for themselves. And and they were wrong in my case. the The people who were helpful taught me that, first of all, OA is not a theological debating society. Like other 12-step programs, it's a program of experience. That means that we take an action and that provides us the experience and then we share our experience. Those who identify with that experience may get some benefit from ours. Those who don't are free to let go of it and go on to the next person who might have something to share that they can relate to. That's pretty much how the program works. One compulsive overeater talking to another. As one old timer once said, for the benefit of the talker and not the talkie. And I identify with that too. One of the most helpful things that anybody uh, said that, that helped me deal with this question in my own mind was this. Uh, He was asked, how can you find God if you're an atheist? And he said, don't worry about God. As we empty of self, we automatically fill with God. And that gave me the idea that I was able to translate the language of of the program and the religious rhetoric that I found here into my own experience so that I was able to get the benefit of people's experience even if they expressed themselves in a language that was different than my own. And I think that if you ask me today to share with you what the term God as I understand God means to me, I would say very simply that It's a metaphor for the opposite of ego. I was able to understand from my own experience that my problem was my self-obsession. And I looked into my own life experience and began to see it in terms of the principles of the program as I was gradually beginning to familiarize myself with them. Like this. I could see and this is just my own interpretation and there's there's no need for anybody else to uh, to adopt this one any more than there is a need for anyone to to be converted to anybody else's religion I'm just sharing with you my, my own experience and my own understanding of my own experience and letting you listen in I see my life as beginning in the womb when the entire universe as I knew it consisted of me. All my needs were satisfied. There was nothing in the universe as I knew it except that which was me and serving me. And then after nine months of this perfect and utter bliss of complete me-ness, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the outside world where I encountered for the first time that which was not me. The cold, cruel world where I was expected to accommodate something that was not me. And I was very resistant from the beginning, I'm sure. And I think the process of of growth whether we call it spiritual growth or emotional growth or maturing or whatever whatever word you might choose is simply that process of surrendering self and gradually becoming less and less self-centered and gradually becoming better and better able to accommodate successful interactions with other human beings and To be able to function as a human being in a world that consists of something other than me. This was something that I had a great deal of trouble with. Life seemed to be more painful for me than it appeared to be for others. Some people call that comparing my insides to other people's outsides. I'm sure that's at least partially true and in my case very true. By the time I got to the program, I wasn't in denial. I knew that I had a serious weight problem. My eating was completely out of control. I was a good deal heavier than what you saw in the picture I just passed around. Even though that was my, my top weight as I looked at it. My eating was out of control for another 12 months after that picture was taken, but Nobody was allowed to take a picture of me. I got here because my doctor had been warning me for two years to get back into OA. He was a firm advocate of 12-step programs and he knew that I had been in and out. And he was warning me for two years that I was going to eat my way into diabetes if I didn't get my my weight under control or my eating under control. And I finally made him a prophet. And so with a very serious health concern helping to motivate me, I came back in and surrendered to this program in February of '93. I had pretty much decided by this time that I wasn't going to let the issue of God stand between me and the fellowship. I was perfectly content for everybody else to believe whatever it was that they believed, and I was perfectly content to believe whatever it was that I believed. And I began in the process of trying to practice these principles in all my affairs. To accept responsibility for my own abstinence and for my own life and to stop pretending that other people's behavior and other people's words and other people's actions were my problem. By now I had enough program to understand that nobody had to do anything in order for me to be all right. And nobody else had to stop doing anything in order for me to be alright. That this was an inside job. And my problem wasn't what happened to me, it was how I reacted to it. I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. That means that my need for relief is greater than the norm. Since I've been in the program, I have read about tests where the scientists have, have tested people like us, put us in a room with a control group, and introduced the stimulus, and seen our reactions significantly outdistance those of so-called normal people. And then, depending on who was testing for what, they'd they'd give us a drink or they'd give us something to eat or whatever, and then they. would introduce a stimulus and see that our, our responses had been tamped down to normal, whereas the so-called normal group didn't change. They, they were normal to begin with. And so the scientists who study us in the medical profession have come to call us stimulus augmenters. I identify with that. My word is a little less esoteric. I, I call myself a human amplifier. I see too bright, I hear too loud, I feel too intensely. I take things too personally. Usually things that have nothing to do with me. My reaction to anything is instantaneous, excessive, and inappropriate. And that's the source of all my problems. One of the terms that I've heard from the beginning of my first days in the program is a term that I've come to dislike. And it's the term thinking thinking. I don't dislike it because there's anything not thinking about my thinking. I dislike it because it implies that I'm capable of a different kind. And I have discovered that my problem is not what I'm thinking. My problem is that I'm thinking. My head is like a radio station that's on 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year. And all of the programming is relentlessly critical of everything and everybody all the time, especially me. And when I tune into that station up here between my ears, I can go into Instant despair and deep depression in two minutes flat. No matter how much time I've got in the program or how successfully I'm eating or how well I'm exercising, all I have to do is sit by myself and start thinking. And everything seems hopelessly bleak. That's the nature of my disease. I bought a car, a new car, a couple of years ago. And it has a rear view mirror with a little button on it and a little green light. And when the headlights get too bright behind me at night, that mirror will darken them because it gives, it gives a dark view. But if I want a clear view, I can push that little button and the green light goes out and I'll get everything behind me with the full brightness. Now, when I first got the car, I was very annoyed by that because I wanted the clear view unless I needed to dim it because of those headlights. And I I was frustrated because every time I start the car, it defaults to the dark view and I have to push the button to clear up my rear view uh, vision. And at some point it occurred to me That this was a metaphor for my disease. I wake up and I default to the dark view. I see the world through that gray shadow and everything looks hopeless. I have to consciously push my clarity button to remind myself that I have this disease and I'm a member of a fellowship which is teaching me principles to act on so that I don't have to act on what my head tells me or my feelings tell me anymore. I have to remind myself to push that button, give myself a clear view every day and sometimes any number of days. Every time I start thinking, up comes that green light and that dark view. And I have to consciously take an action to pull myself out of that. The action that I take, since you can't do a negative, I can't do, don't think. But what I can do is focus my attention on something else other than my head. And so that's what I attempt to do during the day, is I accept responsibility for my own serenity. I always have a book with me. I keep one in the car. I have one at home. I'm always reading two books at a time. If there's nothing else for me to think about, I whip out that book if I'm alone in a restaurant, if I'm waiting for something. I have something to focus my attention on outside of me. That's one of the most valuable ways that I have found to treat my disease one day at a time, one minute at a time sometimes. For me, the program is about surrendering ego Understanding that the only thing that's relevant about the God question, the only thing that I need to understand about God, is that real or imaginary, it ain't me. And once I get that, I'm comfortable. I don't know about anybody else, but I have come to believe that for myself, it would be an amusing arrogance For me to imagine that for there to be a power greater than myself would require a deity. I find my universe filled with powers greater than myself. Many of them quite human. When I have a medical problem, I need a doctor to be a power greater than me. When I have a legal problem, I need an attorney to be a power greater than me. When I have a dental problem, I need a dentist. It doesn't require a religious solution for me to understand that I'm not running the universe. Or even, truth be told, my own life. What I try to do every day is show up do what's in front of me to the best of my ability. Abandon that old perfectionism, which I used to think of as a virtue, but ain't perfect, it's worthless. If you want it done right, do it to me. You know, all that stuff that somebody once called that thing in us that makes us demand more from ourselves and each other than any human being can possibly deliver. I've come to see that that perfectionism in me was at the very core of my disease and the enemy of my recovery. I'm not even sure today that I like the word recovery because it suggests that like a bad cold, I'm getting over this disease. And the fact is, in my experience, I'm not a recovered compulsive overeater because my disease of compulsive overeating, which I don't properly meet until I've let go of the food addiction. Stopped using food as a drug so I view the disease as something separate from my food addiction although related and I view my disease as something that I can't properly treat unless I have let go of the food addiction but I haven't recovered from this disease because it hasn't gone away and I don't think I'm recovering from this disease in that sense because it isn't going away. My disease is alive and well and probably even progressing. But what the program, what Overeaters Anonymous is doing for me one day at a time is teaching me a new basis for my actions that enables me to live one day at a time comfortably without having to use food as a drug without having to have the anesthesia that numbs me against the intrusion of the uncomfortable reality that I experience. And that's what I'm getting from the fellowship. The tremendous comfort that I get when I walk into a meeting and share my experience as a compulsive overeater with other people who nod their heads because they understand as opposed to those who just don't get it and can't possibly get it because it's so experiential. If you don't have the experience of needing to drug yourself with food in order to be able to get through the day and to get through the feelings that are absolutely paralyzing you, then you have nothing to offer me that's going to help me. But at Overeaters Anonymous, I get the help that I need to get through the day and to be comfortable in my own skin. I just want to share one quick thing with you before I, before I stop. It's in an issue of the uh, OA-approved literature. This is from the Lifeline, which is our monthly magazine, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, this is from uh, June 2005, just uh, last month's uh, issue. And in the Q&A uh, section, the Ask It Basket, the question is, can we say the Lord's Prayer in OA? If a group votes to close with the Lord's Prayer, is this against suggested guidelines? The answer to the first question, according to the grapevine here, is, uh and, and, and this answer, by the way, is provided by the members of the Board of Trustees of Overeaters Anonymous. This is not my answer. The answer to the first question is yes. It is for the group conscience of the meeting to decide this matter. The answer to the second question, is this against suggested guidelines? The answer to the second question is also yes. The answer is the same for both because meetings are free to go against suggested guidelines. When meetings consider doing so, it is helpful to have a thorough group conscience discussion about OAs traditions. And then they go on to explain why uh, it is against suggested guidelines and uh, and conclude that uh, some believe that the World Service uh, uh, Business Conference has rejected recommending the Lord's Prayer because doing so would endorse a particular religious tradition and would open the door to legitimate expectations of including prayers of other religious traditions. Also, the WSBC may have considered the prayer divisive in its spirit rather than uniting. And that's what's important to me, because I believe that one of the most, perhaps the most important spiritual principle in all of the 12 steps of recovery and the 12 traditions of unity and the 12 concepts of service, which we try to practice in all of our affairs, is the principle of the first uh, tradition, the principle of unity, Because if we don't stick together, if we aren't unified, if we let ourselves become divisive, then we're all doomed. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you you very much, Merle. I'm going to pass around the answer basket. Please put any questions in here. Okay. And our second speaker is Ida from San Pedro. She will speak for 25 minutes.
2: Okay. My name is Ida. I'm a compulsive reader. I brought my pictures, but they're in my room, so you're just going to have to take them. Most of you have seen me around before, but uh, I've been a, an abstaining member of over Readers Anonymous for 30 years. And, uh, I maintain a hundred pound weight loss and I've been maintaining that for 29 years. And my, uh, spiritual path in this program has literally been all over the map. First of all, how many of you are surprised that I'm up here?
3: <laughs>
2: I was just, I was just curious because, you know, it's, I don't keep it, it's, it's no secret, but uh, I haven't been out of the closet sort of speak on this issue for a while. And I, let me tell you, it was a very scary thing to come out of the closet about at a meeting because it is, goes so against the grain of everything you hear. You know, uh, most people would rather say, oh, my God, I beat my mother up last night, rather than say I don't believe in God, you know, because uh, well, my personal experience when I did that was, People tried to fix me. One person gave me a book on feminine spirituality. Uh, Another one, this is the one I love most of all, was that he uh, came up to me and gave me a prayer to use. And I'm going, okay, and exactly where is this prayer supposed to be sent? And, uh, it was just, it was just amazing. I have people out there who are praying for my immortal soul and have told me so. <laughs> and, and one even said, well, maybe it'll just be a deathbed conversion. I'm going, oh my god. And you know what? And I, when I told her, I didn't say, oh, knock it off. Don't, you know, I said, if this makes you feel better, go right ahead and pray for me. You know? I personally would be very concerned about a higher power or a God who would change his mind on the basis of my prayers myself, you know. But um I uh um but I like I said, my spiritual path has been over the map. I need to give you some of my uh history with um religion uh, for you to understand where I am now. And I grew up um I was a religious fanatic before I ever turned to food. I remember from a very, very young age wanting to die so that I could see God. I uh, I came from, uh, well, it was supposed to be a Catholic background, but my parents weren't married in the church at the time. And uh, I, I came by my uh, religious zeal. On my own, there wasn't anybody in my family who pushed me towards that, trust me. In fact, they, they were afraid of it. They were, you know, they were afraid of how deeply I believed and how absolutely rigid I was in my belief. And I uh, am, I, I can be very narrow-minded, and I brought it that kind of narrow-mindedness to, the, to this program, and it has served me well because I was taught a certain way to work this program, and I wasn't given alternatives and I didn't ask questions my first year I simply did what I was told and I I got a really really strong foundation uh, because I didn't go searching around for different answers you know and uh, and I uh, believed you know from the beginning that uh, there were n- there were no alternatives to uh working the program and abstaining from compulsive overeating that kind of narrowness that that rigidity really worked for me but anyhow I, uh, I, I was fervent in the church until about my early 20s and where it just kind of came unglued and I did leave the church. But I, the basis of my um, early religious uh, experience was straight fear. I was so fear-based in my religion. I was so afraid of going to hell that I was highly self-disciplined. You know, my parents, I never was thanked, not once when I was a kid, I behaved, you know, I, okay, I talked back to my parents every once in a while, but actually do anything, you know like go out and you know get drunk or something, well, I couldn't have because I didn't have any way to get out of the house, didn't have a car, didn't have a boyfriend, you know, none of this business where i and and alcohol wasn't around it i I was just so afraid to step out of line because. God was supposed to be my best friend, but he would send me to hell in a flash, forever, if I didn't behave. Okay. One of the worst days of my life was the day I was confirmed, and this really typifies how I lived inside. Um, it was back in the days when we had to fast before receiving communion. On, uh, you know, and so I had fasted in the morning, went to 10:30 mass. Uh, going to communion, and I more or less passed out. And people thought, oh, maybe you were sick. No, I was just afraid because I was afraid of the confirmation process in the afternoon because I took it literally. If this was a commemoration of Pentecost, I expected a flame to appear over my head and for a dove to alight on the altar. And I meant it sincerely. So I got sick of mass, and then at... Uh, the confirmation, I went up there, knelt down, got blessed, and nothing happened. I went back to my pew, kneeled down, and promptly threw up all over the pew in front of me. That was the kind of fear that I had around my concept with God. Okay. And then it all kind of came unglued in the, you know, the late 60s. Uh, I was not, uh I never got into drugs or anything like that, but... Uh, what happened was change started happening inside the church. And I could not handle that. Because all of a sudden, what happened to all those people who went to hell for eating meat on Friday? Now that we could eat meat on Friday, did they get a pass now? And did they suffer for nothing? I swear to God, this was, this was, and when, when the structure, when my structure, the structure of the church started to change, when the beliefs started to change, I couldn't take it. And uh, I left. So I come down to Southern California, I'm going through my 20s, I'm practicing the disease, I am really into it, um, I'm crazier than a loon, I go into an existential phase, and in college, you know, and I'm doing all these term papers on existentialism and thinking, I am alone, I'm totally unique, nobody can understand me, and I wish there was a God, you know, but, but I love that kind of existential loneliness drama. And uh, um, then the disease, uh, I hit bottom, and I, I came to OA. And uh, I had read about OA in Dear Abbey in the newspaper. And what I remembered from the, from the letter that um, was written to her, thanking her for telling this writer about overuse Anonymous, was that this woman had been a 300-pound um, prostitute. And she had gotten to over readers Anonymous. She lost her weight. She quit working the streets and all of this. And then Abby proceeded to say that uh, and then these kind people stand around and hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer. And I went, well, that is not going to happen. And it took me a year and a half from reading that letter to feeling bad enough to come to OA in spite of the fact that they were going to pray. Okay? So I go to my first meeting, and sure enough, they all join hands and they're saying the Lord's Prayer and nothing came out of my mouth. Absolutely nothing. The next week I went back to the meeting again did nothing and finally like the fifth meeting I went to amazingly enough the secretary of the meeting asked me if I wanted to lead. Now this was a big meeting. You know there was probably 50 people there in 1975 and and I had five weeks, and, and I had been abstaining for the five weeks, which I, later I found out was a lot more than some of the people in the rooms had. But they got me up there, and I remember at the end thinking, now, I've led this meeting, so maybe I should say the Lord's Prayer. So we took hands, and I said it, and to this day, I can remember how it felt. If I felt disembodied. I felt like the voice was coming from somewhere besides me, Okay. But then the big book, uh, and the literature said, you know, just, you can accept the group as your higher power, you can do this, you can do that, and then, that's what I did. I accepted the group as my higher power, and then, whoosh, all of a sudden I believed in God. And I was reading, um uh, uh outside meditation book every day, and, uh, I got a sponsor, and I started working the steps, and this sponsor was very, she was religious as well as spiritual, and I just got more and more into it. And finally, uh, one day I I was asking myself, uh, how do I make amends to the church? Because I had spent years bad-mouthing the church. I no longer bad-mouth the church, okay? That's my amends to the church. But I'm thinking, how do I make amends to the church? And it hit me. You go back to it, and I went, oh, shit. And I got his miracle, and I called a priest. Now, he thought I had—I was a nun who had run away from the convent. And so he, and I was expecting to get to go see him, like the next day. That night, he got me in there. And that night, I went through reconciliation. And it was one of the most incredible, powerful experiences of my life. I just had a total breakdown. I started going to Mass again, and I would go in, and I would start crying, and and. For a year I did this, and by the end of the year it was all gone again because the fear had come back, the fear of punishment. But this time my fear wasn't that I would go to hell if I misbehaved. My fear was that I would lose my abstinence if I misbehaved, that God would would actually take my abstinence from me. So I left the church again. But I continued to do – I continued to act as if. I Every night I got on my knees – whether you know I felt like it or not and I said my prayers every night down on my knees and I did that for about 22 years 23 years maybe and then one night I got down on my knees and I started in and then I thought why am I doing this where is you know where to what where is this going? And I got up, and that was the end of that. And I haven't done it since. And I didn't talk a lot about this at meetings because it is a, a big secret. I mean, it was just gone. I just, uh, I just didn't care anymore whether I had a, a, a God concept, a personal God, uh, that kind of higher power at all. And one of the things I attributed this change to, uh, is astronomy. Now, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. I don't get a lot of it. I used to try to teach it every year, but every year I'd have to relearn everything to teach my third graders because I couldn't remember the difference between a, a red dwarf and a brown dwarf and a white dwarf or, you know, a supernova and a an nova, and you know, and a planetary nebula, and I would have to go through all and learn it all over again. But I would surround the children with these incredible... Uh, posters uh, from the Hubble telescope, and it was the uh, absolute magnificent pictures, and and I kept looking at the vastness of the universe, of just this one, and just the idea that there are other ones that make ours look puny. You know, uh, I just couldn't, I just couldn't conceive of a God personal to me in this universe. Now, did I feel like I was isolated from the universe, or did I feel all lonely and everything? No, because I am made of star stuff. Carl Sagan, that's his term. We are made of star stuff. The the material that we that our body is made of is created when a star explodes. You know, I look out there and and I look at the Orion, Orion Nebula and I see the see what it's doing, and I'm thinking that's me. It's making me. And, and, you know, and I feel a part of the universe. I am part of the universe. Now, I'm on this ridiculously small rock. You know, we're not even significant. Um, When I I heard Carl Sagan's wife talk once, and she uh, was talking about the the picture of the earth as the... um, You know, the big blue marble, and you've all seen the shot that was taken by the the astronauts. And the the Earth just totally fills this picture. And she says that really gives you uh, a screwed-up image of what this Earth is really like. She said that she liked the picture of the pale blue dot, and I didn't know what the pale blue dot was. But now we have it up in our hallway. (laughs) It is, it's this picture, it's a picture... And it's just totally black except for this one little tiny pale blue dot up in the corner. And that's our Earth. And that's a real picture of our sent to us, I believe it was by Voyager. Voyager. You know, that's, see, that's it. That's what, that's what I live on. But I am still part of the whole. Okay? And uh, I can affect you know, life on earth. I can affect this life on earth. So, you know, it just went. And it still took me quite a while to speak up at meetings about it because like I said, this is this is the big thing. When people would say to me, How can you work the steps and not have a higher power? And I just go, Well, I just do it anyhow. And they said, Well, how do you how can you work the steps without having work step three? And I tell them what my first sponsor told me the first night I met her. The only way you've known that you've done step three is by doing four through 12. So if you've done four through 12, if you've done an inventory, if you've given it away, if you've made your amends and so forth, you have turned your life over to a power higher than yourself. And for me, that is the process of the 12 steps of Old Readers Anonymous. Early on, I learned that whatever I turn to in time of trouble is my higher power. If I turn to food, then food is my higher power. If I turn to um, my husband, then my husband is my higher power. If I turn to the television set, the television set is my higher power. So what do I do when I'm in trouble? I get a piece of paper and I start to write inventory. And I and then you say, well, but then how do you, then how do you ask God to remove your defects of character? And go, so, okay, I don't ask for them to remove my defects of character. Uh, whatever, to remove my defects of character. But it's like my sponsor said. Yeah, you ask God to remove your defects of character, and then you quit practicing them. You don't wait to be struck perfect. So I've, the reason why I want to uh, get rid of my uh, or lessen my defects of character is not so that I will be pure and go to heaven, but because I want to be more comfortable in my life right now. And my life simply works better if I'm practicing a little humility so that I don't have to get some humiliation. Okay? So the steps are em- um, eminently uh, practical. And the fact is, is that I just don't worry about it. i abstain anyhow, and I tell people when I talk about this, I say, you know, if, you, if you're telling me that you can't abstain Because you don't believe in God or you haven't done the third step properly is how you feel about it. I said, I'm here to tell you that that's a lot of crap. You can abstain. You know, I quit getting on my knees and I didn't get up and binge the next day. And it's been, I don't know. Six, seven years. I've actually, you know, I've been, I love it. I've been around so long, I've actually lost track of time. (laughs) But there I am. And yet, you know, after I came out about this at meetings, nobody I was sponsoring fired me. Nobody said, oh, my God, I can't have you for a sponsor because... You don't believe in God. Now, I've been fired because I eat sugar, but I have never been fired. <laughs> but I have never been fired because I don't believe in God. And I sponsor people who are not only devoutly spiritual, but devoutly religious, including Catholics who are involved up to their eyeballs in their church. And they know exactly exactly. Uh, how I feel and my experiences and it doesn't make any difference in our relationship except one of them is praying for my immortal soul. And the other one may too also. She just hasn't had the nerve to tell me yet. But they, uh, and I've, I've sponsored a lot of people and they feel, they just start talking about God and I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and they know, you know. And it just has not affected our relationship at all. The, because, and because, and they have told me this, they believe that I've had a spiritual experience. And how, what's my proof that I've had a spiritual experience? The greatest proof is that I've on a continuous basis. Because if I were, if I was still turning to food, then food would be my higher power. I'd still be on the run. I quit running when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, and uh, they uh, they tell me, well, you know, Edith, you you are a generous person, and that you know what? It's hard for me to say out loud, you know, because uh, I look around and I and I I have some incredibly generous people in my life. And I just go, you know, you guys give so much. And they say, yeah, but you give of yourself. And that's part of my spiritual experience. You know, I give them my time. And I tell them the truth about me. And when I I actually, I proposed this topic to the program committee. And I was concerned that nobody would show up this morning. And we actually started with about... Two people. <laughs> so uh, I'm uh, I'm amazed. I'm actually amazed that, that this number of people actually came up with this topic because we've never we've never t- had this topic on any uh, at any convention that I've ever been to. And it ne- it's something that needs to be talked about. And uh, when I first came in, they used to say uh, there are three areas in which you have absolute you're the absolute authority. Uh, your abstinence, and I know now they meant food plan, but they called it abstinence at the time, uh, your weight, and your concept of your higher power or God. And, uh, but even back then, even though that was that was a, a given, they never said, or you don't have to, and even the big book, doesn't, uh, the big book says, many of us, you know, um, come in and we're agnostic or atheist, but they they change their minds. We change our minds, you know, and I'm going, well, what about those of us who changed our minds in the opposite direction after 24 years? <laughs> uh, the big book doesn't cover that. But anyhow, that is about it. Uh, today, I'm um, I'm really grateful for this program. I'm uh, grateful to people, for the people who are praying for me and for the people who just... Uh, the fact is, you know, it's like when you tell any secret. People come up to you and say, I want to talk to you about this. And this just happened last night, you know, for a very unexpected source. Somebody came up to me and, you know, and I said, this is my topic for tomorrow. And, and, person started talking to me because you know it emboldens other people it's like any secret you know we tell it at the the podium and other people go me too we're not alone and we are you know atheists and agnostics are not alone in this program and uh, we can be uh, we can have that spiritual experience nowhere in the in the uh, appendix of spiritual experiences that say, you know, you go off and you uh, get religion. It's that change, the change in personality and my God, I have had a change. I love that. My God, I have a change in personality. Okay? And I'm done. Thank you.
0: Now we will have ten minutes of questions from the ask it basket um, if they. Okay. This is for Ida. Do you pray to whom? to whom do you ask for help?
2: The only time I pray is at meetings. And uh, I do that because I believe that the real function of prayer is to bring people together. And that's what it does. You know, we join hands. And I I will say something about that, about saying the Lord's Prayer at the end of meetings. I don't like saying the Lord's Prayer at the end of meetings because we can't leave it alone. We keep changing the words to fit our own needs. And then what what do we do? We, uh, we, We go to the third step prayer. After telling the newcomer who's been at the meeting, that we are not a religious organization. We do the third step prayer that only we know. And the newcomer has no clue as to what's going on. But we're not a religious organization. We just have this list of prayers that we all know by heart. I love it. I just find that really ironic. Uh, The, um, uh, who do I ask for help? Um, Where do I turn to? I turn to the process of the 12 steps. And uh, after, you know, I... And then I call my sponsor. That's what I do. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, this one is for Merle. It says, thank you, Merle. I am indeed paralyzed by thoughts of self. The latest permutation of this is blaming my depression for the failures in my life. And I'm back in the food to manage discomfort. Can you offer a suggestion as how to begin doing it differently? I feel paralyzed.
1: Well I have often felt uh, depressed and paralyzed and uh my experience as I as I said is that this tends to come from my thinking. I was talking to a guy that I sponsor a few weeks ago and he was and this has been ongoing, he's been around a long time and uh and we've become good friends, and he said it's, it's. He said it's the same old thing. He said I should be doing this and I should be doing that, and I know I should do this, and yet, yet what I'm doing is is nothing. I'm not doing anything. And it suddenly occurred to me. I said. I said. You know that's not true. That's not true. What you are doing is making a decision to take the action of sitting and thinking. And that's the most destructive thing that we know how to do. And I realized that the reason that I don't do that as much anymore as I used to, and why my life is so much better as a result, is that I choose to do something else instead, and I give myself permission to let that be anything at all, that will succeed in arresting my attention. Even if my head would judge it as unproductive, a waste of time, you know, self-indulgent, all that stuff, whether it's going to a movie or watching a TV show, reading a book, if the work that I'm doing will arrest my attention and I can be productive, that's great. But if not, if my mind is wandering and I'm getting inside my head, that's destructive. I will do anything, recreation included, if it will keep my attention focused away from me, because I choose to do something other than sit and think, and it is a choice. Well I recognize that it's a choice that I make one way or the other. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. This is to both of
0: you. What do you use as a higher power?
2: Okay. Um, as I said before, the process is a 12-step. And because uh, that's what I turn to when I'm in trouble. I don't have anything to expand on that.
1: To tell you the truth, I have never actually related to the term higher power because to me that is, that's a religious concept that I, I simply don't think in those terms. I understand that my problem is my self-obsession and that my solution is in surrendering that. And, uh, I even pray sometimes, and I don't think that there's anything more humbling than praying to something that you don't believe existed. It's 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 an action which helps me surrender ego, and I don't have to conceptualize or personify a higher power in order to get the benefit of that surrender. It reminds me that no matter who or what is running the universe, or if nothing at all is running the universe... The important thing for me to remind myself of is that I'm not running the universe and that the weight that I place on my shoulders by thinking I'm responsible for everything is my self-delusion. And anything I can do, let go of that, helps me.
0: And this also is to both speakers. What do you think of changing the word God to higher power in our readings if it is passed at WSB?
2: I don't want any words changed anywhere. You know, remember I talked about that tunnel vision stuff. I don't want, especially in the in the foundation of this stuff, which is the literature. uh, I don't want I don't want any words, and it doesn't matter to me because you know, whatever you call it, you know what you're saying. You know, it just doesn't matter.
0: Which of the tools has helped you the most? This is for both of you.
1: I think the tool that helps me the most is talking to another overeater. That includes meetings and it includes sponsorship. I've heard the cliche often that you have to give it away to keep it. My experience is that you have to give it away to get it. I understand my my disease and my recovery best when I'm trying to, to share something with somebody else because when I'm concerned about you, I'm not thinking about me. And that provides a clarity that I don't get when I'm starting trying to think about my own problem.
2: Yes, this whole business of service is just so, so crucial to me. Um, I people call me and say, "Well, can you can you speak at this meeting and uh, in six months?" And I go, "Sure, why not?" And then I tell them, well, then I know because then I'll abstain for six more months. And they, I get this, what's she saying, you know, and it's just like, well, yeah, because, you know, if, I'm, if I've got a commitment in six months, I'm going to abstain because I certainly don't want to have to call you and tell you I broke my abstinence and can't do it, you know. And, uh, and you know, conventions are my thing. Conventions, I, this is my 11th convention committee. I, I was on the first convention committee in 1978. For Region Two, and I've been doing conventions pretty consistently ever since. but last night uh, the the convention treasurer and I were I, we were i was wired after the opening. I had such a good time up there. you know it was it was just crazy, but uh, we were we had gone into the the boutique, and the treasurer comes in there about the money and we started yelling at each other. She said, this job is so hard. And, hard. and I said, well, you know, it, it's so, it's hard. And people who don't know us, who understand our relationships, going, what's going on here? Because these two women are literally yelling at each other. And, and I, she said, you can never do this job. You can do this accounting. And I said, yeah, well, you couldn't teach third grade. And she says, yeah, but you got paid for teaching third grade. And I said, yeah, but you get to abstain another day for doing what you're doing. And these people are just going, you know, and I was, we were having, I was having a ball. I'll find out later if she was having a ball, but I was having a ball. And, but that's, this is the point, you know, she gets to abstain for, you know, she gets to abstain another day. I get to abstain another day when I do service. Uh, it keeps me involved in the, um, uh, say, oh God, I lost it, but the um and then the service you know of of sponsoring, oh my you know that is just that is you know such a gift to to talk to people one to one the tools which tool is helping me the most changes uh there are some that um I find that I want to use the tool of literature but I'm I have great difficulty doing it on my own so I try to do literature with people that I sponsor and like I'm going to pass it on for the second time with somebody and I'm doing the big book with somebody else and I'm doing as Bill sees it with somebody else so that I you know I keep going through the literature because uh, if it you know for me to just sit you know and, and do it on my own I just don't you know uh Meditation, uh you know, prayer meditation, no. Uh, I do, so it's service. Telephone calls, the only person I ever call is my sponsor. And that's been true from the very beginning. I have probably made maybe three phone calls to people who were not my sponsor in 30 years. But I'm on the phone two hours a day, five days a week. And, and with a lot of the people, I am very blessed to uh, sponsor several people who have been Sane for many, many years. And uh, I'm still the sponsor, and sometimes I have to put on my sponsor hat and say, listen here. But a lot of times, it is more of a, of a give and take, you know. But when I want help, I call my sponsor. I don't ask the people I sponsor to help me, you know, except to listen to me unload sometimes. And then I take it to my sponsor. So I think over the over the um, uh, over the over the thirty years, I would have to say service in its various forms, one to one and above the, at the meeting level and then above the meeting level has been my the most important tool for me.
0: Thank you very much, both of you. We really appreciate that. We now have an opportunity for open sharing. Um, we'll have time for about three pitches. If you have already shared at another workshop, please give an, others a chance before you come forward. Limit your share to three minutes, stay on topic, and sign the tape release form after you share. It is now time for home. Okay. Now, this subject is agnostic and atheist on board. Who would like to go first? Right. Three minutes.
3: I'm Lorraine, a compulsive over I just want to check in because it's really important for me. I mean, I love listening, and I'm so glad this topic's here. I didn't know that it hadn't been before till Eda said that, and uh, something drew me to this one. There were a couple of other workshops I was going to go to. I just, so something drew me here, and uh, and then I saw Eda, and of course, I've heard her so many times, and, and I said, no, I'm supposed to be in this workshop. And I heard things this morning from her and from Merle that just, uh, I was supposed to hear that I don't remember hearing before if I did. Anyway, I needed to be here. And, and I, this, this topic is just really important because I, I know I came into this program 32 years ago, an atheist, an agnostic, not believing in God. And, uh, just went along with the program, I mean it's you know I said the prayers and I held hands, and I did all that, and I read the big big book, and I believed, and I still believe what the big book says, and it applies to me um, but my concept of a higher power has changed over the years, and I just know that something is greater than me that has kept me here and helped me to abstain, although I have not had continuous. Abstinence, but has kept me in the program for 32 years. Coming back to meetings, um, listening, sharing, and I, I believe those 12 steps—that uh, the answers are all there. So I just—I needed the reinforcement that I heard this morning, and this thing of the fellowship, you know, of uh, that's so important. Um, and I—I'm just looking forward to getting a whole lot more throughout this weekend. But uh, I appreciate all the service everyone's giving, and, and thanks for letting me share.
0: Okay, next please. Okay.
4: Hi, I'm Katie, compulsive over Eder. Thank you, Earl and Ida. Uh, the challenge here for me is to time myself. Um, uh, I want to ditto what uh, Lorraine said. I uh, You know, I heard things today that I'm sure I've heard before but don't necessarily remember. And like many of us, I need constant reinforcement. Um, I'm fighting against this busy brain of mine, which is constantly telling me something else. And I I think the thing that I want to acknowledge most of all is that um, I've been here about seven years, and uh, the first thing that my brain is going to tell me any time I turn it on is, that I'm not doing it right, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is, from um, brushing my teeth in the morning to um, praying to a higher power, whatever. I, you know, name it. I'm not doing it right. And uh, I think what I heard today is that I need to lighten up on myself, and there is no one right way to do it. um, uh, um and i can, you know i can be a committed member of this fellowship regardless of whether i choose to embrace a higher power or not um, and i don't have to fight that so thanks very much
5: My name is Nanette. I'm a compulsive overeater.
0: Um,
5: I don't happen to be an atheist or agnostic. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Um, when I first came to OA, I didn't say the Lord's Prayer. I would lay hands, and I would say, keep coming back, but I wouldn't say the Lord's Prayer because in the steps it said, God is, I and you as we understood him. And so as far as as I was concerned, that was a a religious prayer. That was a Christian religious prayer. And I I thought you were all liars, you know. I was was supposed to say this prayer with God as you understand him and not as I understand him, so I wouldn't say it. And I was even asked um, to lead it a few times that I always pass. I would smile and pass, not, not a big deal. And then one day in the meeting... I just felt, and I was, it was within the first year, and I just felt this community was the room that I was sitting in. And I was grateful that I was a compulsive overeater uh, in that I get to sit there and be part of this community. And for the first time after the meeting, I mean, at the end of the meeting when we linked hands, I did say the Lord's Prayer because it suddenly the, the prayer changed for me. It was no longer a religious prayer. It was just a prayer to be part of. And it didn't matter what the words were for me I was just doing the ritual that was that made me part of this particular fellowship at that time and then years later um, I discovered that I wasn't Christian Um, I did my only formal religious anything was Christian Sunday school I was in an Easter performance thing and I totally didn't believe the Christian stuff for me and um, I was at a, my home meeting. Was this meeting that I felt really safe in, and I, I admitted that I wasn't a Christian. It was like saying I'm not an American. It was like I was going to be struck dead because and I'm Chinese American. So it felt like you don't want to say you're not American. You want to be as American as possible so people will accept you. And so I said I wasn't Christian, and I just felt like oh no. How, but I had to be honest. Because I'm sick of my secrets, and I'm obliged to tell you the truth about me. Because other people told the truth about them, and that made me feel that I could belong, that I didn't have to compare my insides with someone else's outsides. And so, um, this this fellowship is so encompassing, everybody, including not being a Christian. Thank Thank you.
6: Hi, my name is Dan. I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, Dan. Thank you, Merle. Thank you, Ida. I don't know what I am except that I'm a compulsive over-eater. Um I think I just try and ignore the big question. Uh, I do know that uh, asking for guidance from whatever is a good thing for me because my guidance for myself doesn't work very well. And uh, as far as the Lord's Prayer goes, I have a lot of opinions. And I'll try not to share too many of them. But um, there's a line in that prayer. There's two that actually cracked me up in OA. People change the word bread to strength, which I think is hilarious. It's not talking about like wheat and flour. It's talking about a spiritual sustenance. A lot of people are very literal and they don't get the, the, the metaphor there. And then the other one is when I'm praying to God of my understanding, whatever that is, and I ask him not to lead me into temptation, and that's just, that, what kind of a God <laughs> would lead me into temptation? You know, that's my job. That's what I do. I need one that will, you know, keep me free and safe. Um, but the, the only thing that, uh, this, this is great that this is a, a topic. Um, I to—I don't know what camp I fall into. Um, but I have a good friend who shares about, okay, let's pretend that there is a God Let's pretend that I live my life according to how he would have me live it. And then I die and I find out, oops, there's no God. There's no heaven. You, you live that good, useful life for absolutely no reason. Exactly what have I lost? You know, so that's kind of where I am. Thanks. I think we
0: still have a little more time. now time to close this workshop please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you all for coming today. Yes, I did. (laughs)